Hello and welcome to another episode of the First Incision, a CMF podcast, where we look at topics at the interface of faith and medicine affecting our Christian lives in today's world. I'm your host, Dr. John Greenall. How should Christian medics think about controversial issues such as euthanasia, abortion, transgender and sexuality? What does the Christian worldview have to offer here? I'm really excited to today have on the podcast a special guest, Professor Nancy Piercy. And today in this extended edition of The First Incision, we talk about her latest book, Love Thy Body, Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Nancy is Professor and Scholar-in-Residence at Houston Baptist University, a Fellow at the Discovery Institute Centre for Science and Culture, and the author of several books, including The Excellent Total Truth, as well as Finding Truth, that have been foundational for me and many others in CMF as we interact with students on university campuses around the big questions of life. She is author of the book we are going to talk about today, Love Thy Body. I know many within CMF have read and benefited from this book, and it's a privilege to have you on the podcast today, Nancy. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, it, just for starters, it would be great to get to, to know you a little bit. Um, from reading several of your books, I, I know that in your earlier years, you weren't a follower of Jesus and your journey to faith was was an interesting one. So could you perhaps describe how you came to faith and how that influences so much of what you write and speak about now? Right. Well, I was raised in a Christian home, um, but about halfway through high school, I started asking questions. And my questions were pretty basic. All I was asking was, how do we know it's true? I was going to a public high school. Um, all my books are secular. All my teachers are secular. I didn't really know any Christian people. Um, and so I just wanted to know, how do we know that what we believe is right? And unfortunately, I couldn't find any adults who could answer that question. Um, my pastor and my parents, uh, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. I asked a Christian university professor, um, why are you a Christian? Just point blank. Why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. Oh, wow. And I thought, it's not working for me anymore. Um, and I even had a chance to talk to a seminary dean. And I thought, well, here I'll get a more substantial answer. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. And so with that quality of answer, I decided maybe Christianity didn't have any answers. And that the most, I thought of it as a matter of intellectual honesty, that if you don't have good reasons for something, you shouldn't say you believe it, whether it's Christianity or anything else. Right. And so I very intentionally set my, my, my religious upbringing aside and, and embarked on a search for truth. Having been a Christian, I knew what the answer, I knew what the questions were, right? I knew the big questions were, you know, is, is there a God? Is there a purpose to life? Is there, um, is there a foundation for ethics, or is it just a matter of, you know, what's true for you, what's true for me? And I pretty rapidly decided that if there was no God, then the answer to the, all those questions was no. There is no purpose for life. There is no foundation for ethics. There's not even a foundation for knowledge, um, because if all I have is my puny little brain in the vast scope of time and history— what makes me think I can have some sort of universal object or truth? Ridiculous. So I had reached this very relativistic, skeptical point of view by the time I was a senior in high school. Uh, so it was a couple of years later when I was attending school in Germany. We had lived there when I was a child, so I'd gone back, that I came across the ministry of Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland. And that was the first time I had encountered 
any Christians who who did apologetics, who did who said, hey, there are really you know, there's reasons, there's arguments, there's good support for Christianity. I was blown away. I had just never heard anything like that. Um, in fact, I was so blown away that I I left. Wow. <laughs> the first time I went to Labrie, I stayed a, a month, and I was afraid I might be drawn in for emotional reasons because that was so attractive. Christianity had let me down already, so I did not want to go that way unless I was absolutely convinced intellectually that it was true. I didn't want to be drawn in emotionally, so I left. And um, just reading apologetics, you know, people like C.S. Lewis, and others that I'd never heard of before. Um, just from my own reading, I finally decided I was convinced it was true. And uh, then I thought, well, where do I find other Christians? Because I wasn't connected to a church or anything. And I, well, I knew some Christians back at Labrie. So I went back to Labrie a year and a half later. And that's where I really got grounded in understanding Christianity as a worldview. And because the... Um, intellectual component was so important to me that's I spent the rest of my life <laughs> writing about that and trying to reach out to young people who have any kind of questions that I was having and treating questions seriously I, I mean that was I still get so many students in my classes who say I have questions and my parents are like well, what's wrong with you you should just have faith like I do right just treating them seriously as you know as it, God made us with a mind God made us rational creatures, and and Christianity does make sense, and we can promote it as something that has good reasons and arguments supporting it. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And um, it's so encouraging to hear the influence of, of Labrie. Um, it's interesting that the, the director of English Labrie here in the UK is um, a former staff worker and a former medic at CMF. And we actually take um, deeper fellows from our internship program um, every year to spend time at Labrie to engage with these kind of questions. So oh, that's wonderful. Um, one of the tools you um, you talk about as being useful in understanding worldviews is understanding the fact-value split. Perhaps you could unpack that for us as a category and how that's affecting people as we approach this question about the body. Right. Well, one of Francis Schaeffer's main themes was that the concept of truth itself has changed. And what happens then is when, when Christians say Christianity is true, you know, the gospel is true, the Bible is true, People no longer understand what they mean. And he used the imagery of um, two stories in a building where he said truth has been split. And on the lower story is uh, factual, scientific, empirical truth. Um, and, and many people today are empiricists. You know, that if you have a basic secular education, you're probably an empiricist, meaning you think that the only real truth is what's there in the lowest story, scientific, empirically testable facts. Well, if that's the only truth, what happens to theological and moral truths? Mm. Well, they're not considered really truths anymore. Right. They're considered yeah. personal preference, personal opinion, you know, your personal experience, private, subjective, relativistic. And so when we talk to ordinary people today, they're... Fa they're filtering what we say through that fact-value split. Ah, yeah, so I, you, got, you gave it a label, fact-value split, and that kind of summarizes it. In the lowest story are facts, in the upper story are personal values. And many people, when you talk to them, will automatically 
filter what you're saying through the fact value split and they will say, oh, well, you're talking about religion. That's in the upper story. So that's subjective, private, and relativistic. If they're kind, they'll say, I'm glad that works for you, but they won't feel that it's, it's they won't feel it's objective truth that everyone needs to, to take account of. You know, that's science, but religion is not considered objective anymore. And so and I'll, I'll personalize this. Um, this is a process I went through when I went to Labrie. Uh, Schaefer called it pre-evangelism. Right. Um, he said a lot of times we have to address the question of truth. What do we mean by truth before we explain why Christianity is true? And that is exactly the process I had to go through. Um, I was such a relativist, such a skeptic, that I had to first be convinced that there was such a thing as objective truth, especially when it comes to things like theology, before I could... Um, work through whether Christianity was that truth. And so that's why um, th- that's why the fact value split is so important because it's the main reason that Christianity is marginalized and why Christians are disempowered in the public square because people no longer think they're even talking about truth. Well, that, that's so helpful. I mean, it's really interesting for us as, as medics, you speak in that way because, you know, our, our medical profession is, uh, I think, as you've, you've written in your, in your book, um, it's sort of integ- it's based on this sort of integrated and unified system of truth where the natural order and the moral order go together but i think what what you're saying through the book is that in postmodernity that's been been split and for example as medics have been told look you stay in the that lower story that that material realm of, of bodies and science and potentially keep out of this this upper story um would that be a fair a fair thing to say that's how I usually say it, taking the words right out of my mouth. Brilliant. Well, I must have, I must have read your book. <laughs> well, that's great. And, and talking about the book, you've, you've titled the book Love Thy Body. And as I've said, for, for, for medics and healthcare professionals, this is just such a relevant book. Could you tell us why you chose that title? Many people have a very negative view of the Christian ethic. In fact, today, when you go out into the, you know, the broader culture, People are not asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? And my goal is to debunk the negative stereotypes that are so common. And my, my overall theme is that, ironically, the secular view, in spite of the fact that it claims to emphasize the body and science and what we can know and about the physical, our physical health, um, it actually has a very low view of the body, whereas the Christian view is based on a high view of the body. And then I, th- I show that in the book through um, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, transgenderism, transhumanism, and so on. And, and so, ironically, the Christian view says we want to respect the body, we want to honor the body. God has created you as a whole person. Both the upper and the lower story, we don't have that division. Christianity treats you as a psychophysical unity. And even Christians uh, often get, the, um, get this mistaken because they will tend to say, oh, here's how one of my students summarized it. She said, um, in growing up in the church, I was always taught um, spirit good, body bad. You know, as long as you're uh, in the body, you're away from God. So we're all looking to go to heaven where we lose our body. And that's supposed to be the ideal. Well, that's not the ideal. The ideal the ultimate form of salvation is when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, and we experience the resurrection of the body. So it turns out that 
contrary to what even Christians think, the Christian ethic is based on a very high view of the body. I mean, what we what we face here in the UK, and I'm, I'm sure yourself in, in the in the US, um, is when people th- throw out a statement, for example, you know, gender is just a social construction. Um, how, how would you engage that that question or st- or statement? Should I say it's not really a question, but how exactly. would you engage that statement? <laughs> Transgenderism is the clearest example of denigrating the body because the transgender ideology specifically says gender has nothing to do with biological sex. There's a BBC documentary that says at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. At war with your body. Talk about alienation from the body. So what's happening is in that in that war, it's the mind that wins, right? It's the body that's seen as not having any any meaning, any purpose. It's not really part of your authentic self. And the Christian answer to that is why accept such a devaluation of the body? I read an interview, and this interview is not in the book because I read it after I was finished writing it, but I was astonished by it. Um, it, it appeared on a very liberal secular website and it was by a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years from age 11 and then reclaimed her identity as a girl. And she said the turning point came, and this is a direct quote, when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Wow. And I thought, mm. great. Even secular people are starting to see that the issue here is having a high view of the body. Uh, you'll start to see this now in, in, among some secular critics of the transgender movement. They're starting to say it expresses body hatred. And this is obviously a very highly, highly charged area, um, particularly around uh, around children. And, and you, you write in your book that um, even as, as churches communicate the moral truths of scripture, they must also become places of refuge for victims of the sexual revolution and those who have been hurt by its lies. So could you perhaps give us an example of how we might uh, respond with with compassion to people in these situations? Yeah, exactly. Because um, I tell the story in Love Thy Body of a young boy who clearly had gender dysphoria from a very young age. Um, and in fact, this is interesting. Most people don't know this, but scientifically, the most common correlate of non-heterosexual behavior in adulthood, that is either either homosexuality or uh, transgenderism, gender dysphoria, the most common correlate has nothing to do with biology, nothing to do with genetics. The most common correlate is simply gender non-conforming behavior in childhood. Right. And this is a far stronger correlate than any biological connection. So in, in Lovely Body, I do tell the story of Brandon um, not his real name, uh, who from before he was even walking, it was clear that he was uh, very gender nonconforming. His his babysitter said to his mother, uh, he's too good to be a boy, by which she meant he was um, so quiet and so compliant and so gentle, he fit all the feminine, you know, the typical feminine stereotypes. In preschool, when his mother picked him up, invariably he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys. And already in elementary school, he was coming to his parents weeping and saying, 
I feel the way girls do. I, I think the way girls do. God should have made me a girl. So by 14, he was searching the internet for an information on um, transgender uh, surgery. So what did his parents do? What they did was they made sure, first of all, that he knew they loved him just the way he was. Uh, I have had, I had a homosexual, a former homosexual that I knew in college who said, as a child, I was always interested in art and music and um, my dad was baffled and kept trying to toughen me up by pushing me into more masculine things like sports. Brandon's parents didn't do that. They didn't pressure him to be different. They made sure he knew it was okay to be a sensitive, relational, gentle, emotional boy. Sure, yeah. They said maybe God is, is equipping you for one of the caring professions, like a psychologist, counselor, healthcare worker. And their favorite line was this. They kept telling him, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. So they kept affirming him. And, and eventually what he decided was surgery, he said, would not give me what I want. It wouldn't turn me into a girl. You know, there's a, there's a cardiologist named uh, Paula Johnson who has a very popular TED Talk in which she says, every cell has a sex. Every cell has a sex. You can't just every cell in the body. There's no way. So he came to realize that. And I think the, the takeaway is, you, you know, for us as Christians, the, the gifts of the Spirit are not uh, divided by sex. You and I might have thought prophecy and teaching sound more masculine. You know, we might think service and mercy sound more feminine. But the Scripture doesn't divide them that way. It says the Holy Spirit gives them to each individual as he chooses. And even uh, the, greatest, the greatest man that ever lived Jesus Christ called himself gentle and humble in heart. So I think the thing we need to do in the church, you know what Brandon tells me? He says the stereotypes are worst in the church. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. yeah that, he says, I find the strongest stereotypes, I find it hardest to be myself in the church. And um, like I said, he decided not to transition. <laughs> but the last time I spoke with him, you know, he'd graduated from college university. He had his first job and he seemed to be at peace with his gender identity. But at the end of the conversation, he tapped himself on the chest like this with a little, a shy little smile and said, but I'm still a girl on the inside. And I said, okay, wait a minute. What do you mean? He said, well, I still fit the girl stereotypes. And that's why we have to, and the church is where he should be able to say, no, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. The church should be the place where we give people the freedom to be who God has made them to be. Right. That there's a spectrum of personality, and boys can be way over, way over on the gentle, sensitive side of the spectrum, just like girls can be. And girls can be on the opposite of you know, being assertive and outgoing and sporty. It's perfectly okay for both sides not to fit the stereotypes, and they should feel that freedom in the church. Right, and I think we very much see that here in the in the UK as well. Um, I think often I say to Christians that the Bible has far less to say about um, you know, gender stereotypes than than perhaps some people would like it to, um, and that right we do see that in the church as well, where these stereotypes are are said and we have to be so careful of what we say and what models we hold up of what is masculine and what is feminine i think in the church and i think i think i'm increasingly 
just seeing that this is so much about identity it's about understanding our identity and, and i love a phrase from a, a friend of mine who says it's it's only when we understand um who we are that we can be how we are that actually it's when we understand who we are i am a male but that means that i'm free to be who i am and being a male may look different it may be enjoying ballet or knitting or watching you know downton abbey whatever it might be but that's that's fine because he knows who he is and he's free to be how he is so that's yeah, that's we're seeing that very much here as well. I mean, all of this is very relevant to us as healthcare professionals. Um, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about how particularly Christian doctors and nurses can respond to this transgender phenomenon, holding this high view of the body, but at the same time compassionately responding to many people who, who feel very confused and some of whom are, are presenting very unwell. Yeah, let me give you another example. Um, this was from... Uh, the BBC, BBC documentary on tra- called Transgender Kids, and it was a little girl who announced at age two that she was a boy. And when her parents refused to treat her as a boy, she would have screaming tantrums, and she would take her fist and, and punch herself in the crotch and say, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. But they took her to Ken Zucker's uh, clinic in Toronto before it was shut down by transgender activists. And what the therapist there said is, we want to help this girl be a little more flexible in her understanding of what it means to be a girl. You can be a girl who plays with Barbie dolls, or you can be a girl who plays hockey. You remember this was Canada. Right, yeah, of course. (laughs) You can be a girl who plays hockey. At age eight, her parents finally took her to a girl's softball team. And she said, oh, wow, girls like me, girls who are more sporty and outdoorsy and assertive. And she said, I'd never seen that before. And she said, uh, it took her four more years before she completely accepted her identity as a girl. She was 12. But she came to, she came to say, I, I accept that I am a girl who has some boy interests. The key there was, I, I love the way they put it, We tried to help her, the the clinicians said, we tried to help her be less rigid or more flexible in her understanding of what it meant to be a girl. And I think that's really key, that our identity is, that we, that's why the book is called Love Thy Body. Our identity is in our body. Our feelings can change, and they often do. In fact, um, Lisa Diamond, you probably know her. She's with the American Psychological Association. And she's the one who's um, discovered and popularized the idea that sexuality is fluid. That was her term. It's fluid. And what she found is that 80% of people who come out as, well, we switched slightly here to homosexuality because that's what she was studying. 80% of people who come out as as homosexual change their sexual identity label at least once. Wow. 80% change their sh- sexual identity label at least once, which means some it's more. So uh, number one, that does not sound like a trait that is biologically determined. And it does underscore that our feelings can change. Our body does not. Our body is an, an, an empirically knowable scientifically testable reality and it is a more reliable marker of our identity than our feelings see you you would use the word identity 
the, the issue here is that in, in postmodern thinking, our identity is in our feeling, our sexual desires, our sexual feelings. And my book is called Love Thy Body because my argument is, no, you should take your identity from your body. God has made your body. It's certainly far more knowable and far more stable than your feelings. And we should be honoring our body. One of the examples I give, actually, you, you may know him, uh, Sean Doherty. He lives in London. He identified as exclusively same-sex attracted. Exclusive, he was exclusively attracted to other men. And um, the interesting thing about his story <clears throat> is that he was raised in a, quote, gay-affirming family and attended a gay-affirming church. So he had no sense of guilt or shame about being homosexual. Today, he is uh, married to a woman and has three children and is a Christian ethics professor All right. in London. People say, well, why would he change then since it was, he was not driven by any, any negative sense of guilt? The answer is that he said, here's how he puts it. I stopped basing my identity on my sexual feelings and decided to take my identity from the body that God had made me. I mean, clearly, you, know, you, you can't change your feelings directly. That's pretty hard to do. But he said, I decided I needed to honor my body, respect my body, what I, which is something I already had. I didn't have to change. This is what I had. God had given it to me. And he says, I decided to accept it as a good gift from God. That, I think, is the heart of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos governed by blind, undirected, purposeless forces, in which case our body has no moral message, it has no moral meaning? Or do we live in a cosmos created by a loving creator, which is therefore fundamentally good? If our body is fundamentally good, then we should respect it, honor it. We should take our identity from our body. Well, that's uh, it's so, so helpful. Thank you. Um, you're listening to The First Incision, a CMF podcast, and I'm speaking with Professor Nancy Piercy about her book, Love Thy Body, and the implications of a Christian view of the body for healthcare professionals in an increasingly secular society. And we've just been discussing how this, this fact-value split, this denigration of the body, if you like, applies to transgender issues. But you also mentioned in your book how it will also applies to uh, the homosexual revolution, and that, that also denigrates biology. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Let, let me make it a little clearer, since we only touched on homosexuality briefly. Um, transgenderism is very clear that it denigrates the body, that it, uh, it demeans the body. It says your body is not part of your authentic self. And in fact, you will find people today even saying it's not only gender that's a social construction, but even your biological sex is a social construction. There's a website, there's a website for parents who are raising their kids gender-free, you know, not telling their children whether they're boys or girls. They're calling them babies. On the, on the website, it literally says, point blank, there is no such thing as biological sex. So that's where we are today. Talk about these issues denigrating the body and your biology. It literally says there is no such thing as biological sex. Homosexuality is a little bit more subtle. Um, but even my homosexual friends will agree with me. When I say, well, biologically speaking, um, in terms of your um, biology, your anatomy, your physiology, your chromosomes, no one really denies that on that level, 
males and, fe males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity, therefore, is to implicitly contradict that design. It's to say, why should my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? This is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. In fact, um, there's an outspoken lesbian named Camille Paglia. And she, this is exactly how she defends lesbianism. She's a little bit iconoclastic as a feminist because she does not think gender is a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. That's how we're, that, that is how we are biologically designed. So how does she defend being lesbian then? She says, well, why not defy nature? After all, and this, these are her direct words. She says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Wow. Mm. What she's saying, I, you catch the logic of this. If our products, if our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then nobody intended us to be who we are. And our bodies don't give us any clue to our identity. Our bodies convey no moral message. They have no inherent purpose that we're obligated to respect. So this is the Christian view, by contrast, that says, wait a minute, nature is a good gift from God. And that's why Christianity always does take into account the facts of biology, whether they're addressing homosexuality, you know, that we are biologically males and females are counterparts to one another, whether we're talking about transgenderism, you know, you're biologically male or female, or when you talk about abortion, the scientific facts about when life begins. You mentioned abortion there. In the book, you make a surprising um, claim for, for me, really, that a common thread actually links issues like transgender and, and homosexuality with moral issues like abortion and, and euthanasia. Um, you say that if you are against uh, abortion, you are seen as waging a war against women. But in your book, you say that abortion wages war on human beings themselves. So can you talk about how you might frame engaging the question when it comes to abortion and women's rights and how it is linked with these other issues? Um, again, we're talking about how secular ethic actually denigrates who we are biologically and, and that the Christian ethic actually values and honors our, who we are biologically, our bodies. Most professional bioethicists today agree that life begins, human life begins at conception. The evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. That's right, yeah. And you know, ordinary people may not be there yet, but when you talk to professional bioethicists, none of them denies that human life begins at conception. So how do they justify abortion then? Basically, they say, well, you can be human, biologically humans, you know, scientifically, genetically, and so on, you can be human, but you're not yet a person. And so, in a sense, they've divided the human being into two parts. They've said you can be human up to a certain point, but you don't become a person until sometime later. And so this is, uh, this is that upper lower story divide that we were talking about in terms of the fact value split. Factually, scientifically and medically, you're, you're a human being, but you don't become a person in terms of a kind of life that we value 
and that we give legal protection to, and that is moral status, that comes sometime later. Somehow the fetus jumps up into the upper story <laughs> and becomes a person that we will uh, legally protect. So the implication is that being human is not enough to qualify for legal protection or moral status. The fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person, which is typically defined in terms of mental abilities, a certain level of self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. But notice the implication of what they're saying then. They're saying that as long as the fetus is biologically human, or you know, quote unquote, merely human, not yet a person, it's just seen as a disposable piece of matter. You know, it can be killed for any reason or no reason. It could be used for research and experiments. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, like Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. I recently read a, me a medical um, article which literally used that term. When it talked about the fetus, it talked about medical waste. This is actually called personhood theory. What it's saying is being human is not enough for human rights. That has an effect for all of us. Wow, it's powerful and shocking, isn't it? I mean, you talk about the, the fetus making that, that, that jump from being, you know, merely inverted commas a human to, to a person. Um, well, well who, who makes that, that decision? Who, who draws that line if people are drawing it in different places? And what implications does that have for us? Yeah, you're right. People, most people quickly catch on to why this is a problem. And that is that uh, the, once you get into the upper story, if once you separate the body from the person, then how do you define personhood? When does it start and who gets to decide? And if you read bioethicists, they all draw the line at a different place because it is completely subjective. It has no obje objective reference then. That's why to be pro-life is to be pro-science, because what, what pro-life people are arguing is that, well, if scientifically we can show that someone is human, the fetus is human, that every human is a person. Every human is a person. We do not accept that dividing line at all. And, and uh, you mentioned euthanasia. It's driven by personhood theory as well. Because what the secular bioethicists are saying is that if you're mentally disabled, if you lose a certain level of cortical functioning, then you are no longer a person, even though you're obviously still human. You know, you don't become an alien species, <laughs> you know, you are still human. And so once again, um, you, what bioethicists are saying is if you're merely human, or as one bioethicist puts it, he says, you are now only a body. At that point, you can be unplugged, your treatment withheld, your food and water discontinued, and your organs harvest, are harvested. So once again, being human is no longer enough for human rights. The danger, of course, is once, the, once it becomes subjective, then whoever has the most power is going to be the one who decides who qualifies as human, and ultimately that's the state. But the, the dangerous part of that is, is it will have no objective basis. It will be arbitrary. And then there's no telling who, which group of humans could be defined as non-persons. I mean, you speak about 
about human rights. That's such a buzzword here, here in the UK, as I'm sure it is in, in, in the US. Um, yeah, I mean, tell us more about that because it's what you're saying is, is, very, is very stark and, yeah, and, and quite shocking, really. What we have to realise is that a, to have a free society, there must be certain rights that are considered pre-political. Uh, that means that the government does not create them. The, the government only recognises them. And what we're seeing in these moral issues that we're discussing is that we are losing pre-political rights because many pre-political rights are based on biology. Take abortion, for example. When the, the state legalized abortion in, here, in the, here in the U.S., that was 1973, Roe v. Wade decision, when the state legalizes abortion, what it's saying is that some humans are not legal persons. And what it's in claiming is being biologically human is not enough. It used to be that you had the right to life just because you're a member of the human species. You know, you're part of the human race. The state doesn't invent the right to life. It merely recognizes it. But when the state legalized abortion, what it was saying is that some humans are not legal persons. And therefore, it was implicitly saying the state now has the right to decide which humans are persons. Not all humans are. So the right to life is no longer based on just being biologically human. It's now based on the state's arbitrary decision who qualifies for human rights. Or take uh, marriage. M marriage used to be based on, uh, marriage used to be a pre-political right the state doesn't invent marriage. It can regulate it and say you have to be a certain age or whatever, but the state doesn't invent marriage. People naturally, males and females naturally come together and form families. So when the state legalized uh, in same-sex marriage, which happened here in, in the U.S., that happened with the Obergefell decision, what the state essentially did was to say marriage is not based on biology. It's based on mere emotional com commitment emotional attachment. What the state was implicitly saying then was, the state now decides who, who qualifies as being married. The total is we have lots of emotional commitments. So who decides? Who decides which one of them? If it's not based on bio, biological complementarity of male and female, then essentially the state is deciding among, among our various emotional commitments, the state is deciding which ones qualify as marriage. So marriage is no longer a pre-political right. Or take transgenderism. Up until a few years ago, people thought sex and gender were essentially the same thing. Gender follows metaphysically from your sex, male or female. But for the state to treat same, um, for the state to treat a transgender woman, that is somebody born male, the same as a biological woman, the state has to say biology is irrelevant. And the state has to say, you know, your gender identity is no longer based on your biology. And that's why the state now feels free, like through our state-run education, for example, the state feels free to dictate to teachers what pronouns they can use. When I first started giving this lecture, I would say, and the next step is parenthood, but, but now it's actually happened. Your, your rights as a parent are based on biology. You know, the, the, the man and the woman conceive a child biologically. In some cases, there's adoption. 
Um, but that's a long, complex process so that your child attains the same status as a, biolog a biological child. But the only way the state could treat same-sex parents the same as opposite-sex parents was to deny the relevance of that biological connection. Was to, you see, what, what same-sex parents wanted is they didn't want to have to go through the, through the adoption process. In legal terms, it's called the presumption of parenthood. That is, um, they wanted to, as long as we were married, you know, as long as a same-sex couple is legally married, they wanted the presumption of parenthood, meaning they, they qualify as parents without having to go through the adoption process. And so in, in uh, 2017, here in the U.S., the Supreme Court did make that decision. It said, okay, as long as you're legally married, it doesn't matter what sex you are. It does not matter if you have a biological connection to this child. You, uh, you qualify as a parent. So what's happened? Parenthood is no longer a pre-political right based on biological connection. Parenthood is now something the state decides. You are your child's parent if the state says you are. So people have not quite realized how uh, drastic the, all of these um, political decisions are and how by undercutting biology, by undercutting the, the, the um, reality of the biological connection, um, we are losing our pre-political rights. And this, it's a huge power grab by the state. Right. I, I think what you're describing is just a, there's just a huge cultural shift, isn't there, that, that, that you're describing to us. Uh, and obviously, you know, it, with front row seats, really, are, are healthcare professionals who are seeing people in, in their clinics and their hospitals um, with, with all of these and all of these issues uh, and all of these scenarios. So could you perhaps just give just to help us understand as, as healthcare professionals how we might respond um, to, to these issues? Yes, there was a study done on um, transgender kids that was very revealing. This was the one um, at Boston University by Lisa Littman. And she was focusing especially on the rapid onset gender dysphoria. In fact, I think she coined that phrase. These are children who showed no sign of gender dysphoria when they were young and who discovered their, that they were really the opposite sex only in their teen, or late adolescence or teens. Um, and so it's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And what she found was um, most people with this kind of gender distress do suffer additional mental health issues, um, anxiety, depression. In fact, the Brown study found that 63% of young people who came out with gender dis you know, came out uh, claiming transgender identity had been diagnosed with at least one mental health disorder prior to the onset of their gender dysphoria. Uh, I mean, think about the teenagers who have undiagnosed depression and anxiety. That that is the age when people have a lot of depression and anxiety. And so these were diagnosed. That means they'd reached the level that they had already sought therapy. What we need to realize then is that these, these are very deeply disturbed kids. These are kids with a lot of problems. And therefore, just fast-tracking them on into transitioning is really not good medical care. Today, you will find it's far more common for therapists to simply fast-track young people into transitioning without asking questions about the medical history or their mental health history. Uh, I, had, I had a chance to do, write an article where I interviewed several parents um, and told their stories. 
And this was the thing that was most distressing for them is that they could not find therapists to help them. One of them was, uh, she was 20 years old when she told her mother, uh, there's something I've been wanting to tell you, I'm a boy. She went to a gender therapist who spent all of 45 minutes with her and directed her to a clinic to get testosterone. And the appointment amounted to, congratulations, you're a boy. Here's what you should do next. And in the schools, too, I had so many parents telling me, my, the school was helping my child to transition and not even telling us. They, would give, they were using her, her, her boy name. I say her because um, the majority of them are now our girls for some reason, and nobody knows why. The rapid increase is mostly among girls. You know, you've probably seen the, the, the graphs, sort of um, horizontal line of number of people who have transgender issues, and then it suddenly shoots up. You know, yeah, and, we, uh, we've seen that very much. And a lot of my GP colleagues say from around the early 2015, we've just seen this rapid rise, you know, and, and as you say, particularly in the UK as well at the, the, the Tavistock Clinic amongst amongst these girls. So they are, they are now outnumbering boys nearly by, by more than two to one when it was used to be the other way around. Yes, yeah. yes transsexualism historically has been primarily a male issue. So this is a really big change. So the, the argument we need to make is, uh, you know, we need to give evidence-based treatment. And there is no other condition, no other medical condition where a child, where a minor can announce, can self-diagnose, can go into a, a therapist, self-diagnose, announce the, the, what they want, and, 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 and then uh, receive the treatment that they demand. This is not evidence-based treatment. And... It's on a medical level, we certainly should at least call for that. And we should call for parental rights. Parental rights are really being attacked in this way as well. Because, you know, behind their backs, the faculty and staff are, are going along with the transition. I don't know about in the UK, but here there are schools that actually have policies that staff and faculty and staff are not allowed to tell their parents what identity the child is claiming in school. Um, the American Journal of Bioethics published an article calling on government to legally mandate that young children have a right to puberty blockers through public schools and state-funded health clinics, even if their parents disapprove. So again, the, the message is being given to parents that, you know, you can, you, you're basically breeders. You, know, you can have children, but then you need to turn them over to the schools for uh, for their sexual and moral indoctrination. Yeah, no, we, we we very much see that. I was just speaking with a a head teacher two weeks ago, who was saying that the, the policy is they're not allowed to disclose to to parents um, of children as young as eleven and twelve. So it's here in the UK as well, absolutely. And Nancy, before we before we finish, I mean, the the premise of your book is very much love thy body, and you quoted the the, the BBC documentary, um, which spoke of that war. Um, where our, our minds being at war with with our bodies, the bodies being something to be freed from, if you like. So in the, in the culture that we're in, with you know Christians being caught in the middle and, and called bigots and and being told to be quiet, what advice would you have for, for Christians um, and how we can engage with these issues uh, today? One of the surprising things for me was that um, among my secular friends and even Christian friends, the the argument that they found most persuasive was an argument from environmentalism. And you say, you say, whoa, what's the connection there? We have learned from the environmental movement 
that in order to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, we need to respect the structure of nature. When we intervene, we, we must work with the natural order. To use Camille Paglia's words, we may not do as we see fit. And in the same way, what Christians are saying is that we should respect our own biological nature. That the correspondence between male and female is not some evolutionary accident. It's part of the original creation that God pronounced very good. To tell you the truth, I have been surprised at how hard it is for Christians. They are so stuck in the sacred-secular split. You know, they, that's their upper-lower story, right? And so it's very hard for them to get past the negative message. They're so used to saying, it's wrong, it's a sin, it's against the Bible, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. And so what we need to do is totally retool our thinking. It can help if we think back to the early church. The early church also faced uh, a culture that denigrated the body, that saw the material world as the realm of death, decay, and destruction, for very different reasons from moderate, the modern secular view. Their reasons had to do with uh, Gnosticism and Platonism, Manichaeism. Uh, Augustine was a Manichae for a while. So these, all of these isms treated the material world as evil and corrupt. They talked about the body as the prison house of the soul. And so the goal was to escape the body. That's how they defined salvation. In this context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary because it said, no, the, the universe was created by a good God. Or I should say in Gnosticism, the universe is even created by an evil God because you know, no self-respecting God is going to get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. And so the Christian view said, no, the God who created this universe is, the, is a good God and therefore it is intrinsically good. And even in spite of the fall, it's still good. In other words, it's, it still has value. Think of it this way. If a, pla if a little plastic cheap trinket is broken, we toss it aside and say, no big deal. But if a beautiful masterpiece gets, gets damaged, it's a tragedy. So the only reason sin is a tragedy is because we are masterpieces, important, valuable masterpieces. So we still, I think people, um, Christ Christians have this notion I get this from my students all the time. They say, I was raised to think I was worthless. I was nothing, you know. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It says you are a wonderful, beautiful masterpiece who's been damaged. And then, and then of course, the Christianity teaches that, that the same God who created the universe also entered into the material world. And so the incarnation, this, this was actually the biggest scandal in the first century, that the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And when Jesus, we might say he did escape the physical realm, as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do when he was executed on a Roman cross. But what did he do then? He came back in a physical body. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, the resurrection of the body was foolishness to the Greeks. And... At the end of time, what is God going to do? He's not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake the first time around. He's going to renew it and restore it and create a new heavens and a new earth. And you and I will be there in resurrected bodies. So what we have to help people to see is this is an extremely high view of the physical realm. There's nothing like it 
in any other philosophy or religion. And we should be so excited. We should be so positive in our message to people that, you know, we can't help telling them about Christianity because uh, it's, it's so affirming. It's the, the secular view says you're a product of mindless, purposeless forces. You have no particular meaning. You have no dignity. You have no value. You're just a piece of matter. You know, Richard Dawkins says you're a meat machine. I found people have a hard time understanding when I say, well, wait a minute, secular, materialist, naturalist philosophy actually has a low view of the body. And they say, well, wait a minute. I'll have to tell you, I even had a um, Christian philosopher uh, say uh, in a review of of my book, Love Thy Body, say, no, no, she's wrong. She's wrong. Materialism has a high view of the body because they think that's all that exists. And I'm saying, no, you can say that's all that exists, but you still have a low view of the body because you think it's a product of chance processes, mindless purposes. It has no value, no dignity, no inherent purpose. And that's a very low view of the body. And Christianity is a high view of the body that says it's a, it's a product of a loving creator who had you in mind when he created it. It's such an ama- amazing news, isn't it? And it's good news. And um, for, for those of us in healthcare who are, are dealing with bodies every day, this has been such a helpful message for us. So thank you so much that we're, we're dealing with people and we're, we're encouraging them to, to love their bodies as, as gifts, uh, as gifts from their creator. So thank you so much, Professor Piercy, for your time today. Um, it's been so helpful to understand some of the philosophical uh, origins of the views that inform so much of society on issues that we uh, in the healthcare profession face day to day. Um, and those of you listening, can I just encourage you to, uh, to read and to understand more. Love Thy Body was reviewed in Nucleus in the summer 2019 edition and is on sale at the CMF bookstore. You can also read more about a Christian view of the body in CMF files, for example, number 59 and very recently number 68, entitled A Christian View of the Body. Again, the summer 2019 Nucleus edition is themed on the physical body and is aimed at students. And you can also read more at CMF blogs and other articles across our network. Nancy, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that extended episode as it was such a fascinating topic and we look forward to being with you in a couple of weeks time for another one. Mm-hmm.